Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today I've got sort of an early Halloween-adjacent author interview. I'm talking today with Heather Redmond, who's the author of Death and the Sisters, a Mary Shelley mystery. So it's the first book in a new trilogy of murder mysteries, imagining what if Mary Shelley and her stepsister, Claire Claremont, as teenagers what if they solved a murder mystery? Which, if you know me at all, you know that I am a huge fan of Claire Claremont. Mary Shelley, I respect greatly, and I also enjoy her, but like Claire Claremont is my girl. And I was really excited that she's co-main character in this book. Like, it's a Mary Shelley mystery, but like, to me, it's a Mary Shelley slash Claire Claremont mystery. I also love murder mysteries. That's when I'm not doing this podcast or researching historical stuff. That's all I'm reading and or watching. And I've always been really curious about this sort of genre of murder mysteries starring famous writers solving murders. We talk a bit about that in this interview with Heather Redmond, who is also the author of another series where Charles Dickens solves murder mysteries as well. So anyway, I mean, we're going to talk about it all here. So please enjoy this interview with Heather Redmond about her new book, Death and the Sisters, A Mary Shelley Mystery. So I'm joined today by Heather Redmond, author of Death and the Sisters, which is a murder mystery, but the main characters are familiar literary people. Well, the main character is Mary Shelley. So welcome, Heather. I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about, and we will talk about your book, but you have written a previous series, or you are still writing a new series about Charles Dickens solving murders as well, right? Correct. I have five books out in that series now, starting with The Tale of Two Murders. So... As someone who's writing in the genre of famous writers solve murders, where did this genre come from? Because I know there's other series, other authors are writing. There's like Jane Austen solves murders. And you know what? Why is that a thing? I think the Jane Austen solves murders goes back to the 90s. That's been a very long running series. That was probably the first time I was exposed to the concept And there was a famous book from that era, too, for writers called something like What Jane Austen Wrote and Charles Dickens Ate or, you know, something like that. That's not quite right. 
So I always had them uh, connected in my head, but I went in um, after my first mystery sale to write romance for many years, and I was writing Victorian romance, and my editor moved on to a publisher that only did mysteries. And as a writer, you always try to follow your editor because that's the person who believes in you rather than this behemoth publisher idea that could be anybody working there. So I pitched him three ideas, and one of them just happened to be Charles Dickens because I'd written a book called The Princess Dilemma with a hero who loved Dickens. So I had him reading um, the pamphlets of Dickens' first novels as they were coming out. So it was just on my mind. I had an idea for a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing and probably something from Depression-era Iowa because my mother's from Iowa, and I always want to try to write an Iowa story someday, and nobody's that interested. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one was the Charles Dickens idea. So he decided that was a great idea and we started developing it together. But in the end, I sold it back to Kensington, who'd been my publisher already for like five years at that point. So in general, like, and I promise we are going to talk about the Mary Shelley book, but just this whole concept of, well, I guess you can say, for instance, in the Mary Shelley book, looking at the real life of a real person and trying to figure out how to put in a murder for them to solve. Like, how do you begin figuring that out? So the reason I was so scared about writing books set in historical time periods traditionally was because I was so scared of all the research. And that just tells you I'm someone who believes in accuracy whenever possible. But the older I get and the more I research, I know there's plenty of spaces where we either don't know at all what happened historically, say 200 years ago, or only a scholar is going to know the truth. The rest of us just sort of think we know what was happening based on what our personal interests might be. So I always go in with this idea of as real as I can create based on my own many years of knowledge going back to an 80s era English degree where I was reading um, these novels. And then I look at biography. So people who are famous probably weren't famous since the day they were born. And so I look at the idea of becoming this famous figure. Charles Dickens became famous in his early to mid-20s. Mary Shelley was kind of born famous in a way and then became really famous sort of at 19. At least that's what we think happened. So I'm writing in the holes. You know, we don't have every letter they and their families wrote. We don't have every manuscript they wrote. We don't know what was going on um, in their daily life necessarily. So that's where I can fit in a mystery And there's always, with these enormous operatic type personalities, questions of how did they become this way? And so I'm answering those questions with my fictional story. And in the end, I create my Charles Dickens, my Mary Shelley, my Jane Claremont. They aren't the real person. They're my version, but I'm personally, as um, an accuracy fanatic, comfortable with my version of the people. And if I start to veer away, I make that clear in my notes. Because for instance, Charles Dickens never went to Newgate prison as an actual prisoner. He went as a reporter, but eventually, you know, that has to happen. And so I let people know in the notes. So with Death and the Sisters, when you're looking at Mary Shelley, and what you explained just makes so much sense to me and what the book is like, because I love that you're you're starting the book with a younger Mary Shelley, you know, before she runs off with Percy Shelley, like while she's living at home with in this kind of family of half and step 
siblings. And that was an era that I found really interesting. And we don't know a lot about that time. First of all, I see that's the ideal place for you to put in a fictional story. But what sorts of things did you look at to try and imagine this era of her life where I think her papers, those are the ones they were lost, I think. So we don't really have her juvenilia. Exactly, which is lucky for me. Yeah. In yeah. a way. But sad as a fan of her fiction, of course. So the Regency period is technically 1811 to 1820. Uh, we look at the greater Regency period as the literary Regency. In the romance field, it is a hugely popular era. So there is a great deal of material out there, some of it more accurate than other material. And there's an idea of Georgette Hayer's Regency. She was um, a very well-known author who continues to be beloved by at least writers of the genre. And she created her own version of the Regency, which she knew wasn't accurate. So you're dealing with all these different ideas of what 1811 to 1820 was, but in truth, it's probably the best research decade of the 19th century in England just because of the fanaticism of the writers and readers in the romance genre. So I could start from a deep knowledge going back to 1995 of reading books and having a lot of friends and critique partners over the years who've focused on that. So I, I just have my own backstory to draw from and my own bookshelves and my friends' bookshelves to draw from for research material. But Mary Shelley just happened to be one of the lights of that era. If I look at my bookshelves going back to college, I have Frankenstein there. I have the collected books of Percy Bysshe Shelley, Byron, um, all of those people. So it's just been part of um, my landscape of my life for all these years. And when you get into 1814 and Mary Shelley, that is the crucial um, few months of her life and her whole family because her actions destroyed her family in some ways. So I'm uh, writing at this point a trilogy stretching from uh, May to late July 1814. And it's momentous in her life because as fans of Mary Shelley or Percy Bysshe Shelley know, they famously ran away together in July uh, 28th, 1814. So I'm fitting those first three books in this series into that landscape. But it's also an incredibly important era in European history because that was the break in the Napoleonic Wars. They think Napoleon's been defeated. They have no idea Waterloo's coming in 1815. So um, the Congress of Vienna is coming and all of these um, celebrities of the other day, i.e. military leaders, royalty, nobility, and so forth, are coming into London to celebrate. So as I get deeper into this trilogy, we get into their royal highnesses type people and what's going on in London, which is very exciting for an author because you get to have all the glittering pageantry. Like when you're writing Regency romance, you always need to have balls in there because people are looking for these glittering events. And Mary Shelley herself was the literary intelligentsia type. Um, it's a different scope, but because Percy Bysshe Shelley was the grandson of a baronet, um, her story has a little bit of bouncing up against those people. She had she's seen the literary celebrities of her day because her parents were literary celebrities. Um, so people like Coleridge were just in her life as normal people, and then she's um, can meet a few people like 
Byron because of Percy Bysshe Shelley, her lover, being in the aristocracy himself. Speaking of Byron, um, well, this is my roundabout way to just find a way to talk about. So Mary's stepsister, Jane Claremont, is her name that she goes by in this one, but she later changes her name to Claire Claremont. And listeners of this podcast will know that I have a real affection for her. And your book is called Death and the Sisters. So you've got both of their points of view, like Jane slash Claire. She's not just kind of there in the background. She's one of the the main characters. She's half the book. She is. (laughs) And I was so excited because I love her and she doesn't often get that much attention. So how did you come to the decision that it would be that you would have the two points of view? So in attempting to be as real as I know how to be based on what I know about these historical figures, Mary was a very closed off person. She felt greatly. She had huge, intense emotions, but she had like a placid exterior and people would get completely the wrong idea about her through her whole life, I think, because she just didn't project her emotion into the world. So when I looked at Jane Claremont, who kept changing her name till she settled on Claire Claremont, she's a big, boisterous, dramatic personality who has night terrors and hysterics and dramatics and is being counseled on her personality flaws by Shelley in the biographical details. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have two points of view? So I address Jane in first person with all the drama of her personality And then I switched to Mary in the third personality. I'm sorry, third person. So you kind of get the sense of remove with Mary, but you get the story more in technicolor in Jane's persona. I that's such a good description. And that's also really how the book reads, because you both of them are so different. And I think you kind of to be investigating a murder, you kind of need a Jane Claremont type to just sort of be more rash, I guess, um, and just to be a bit more dramatic. Mary Shelley, I don't know, I picture if actual Mary Shelley was investigating a murder, she would mostly just be, I don't know, thinking things to herself. Like you need somebody who's living out there like Jane. She'd be the person sitting in the chair writing with her quill and sending her minions out to investigate. And there are figures like that in mystery. But um, what's pretty common these days is the very rash amateur sleuth who makes lots of terrible decisions and has no filter whatsoever. And that's kind of the standard with the cozy amateur sleuths in the mystery field today is more the Jane personality. And maybe that's, I'm a big fan. This is why I'm excited to talk to you. And I was just excited about this book in general, because I'm a big fan of Claire Claremont and Mary Shelley, but also of murder mysteries. So I was really like to learn more about the process of how you put together a murder mystery about real people really interested me, but I agree. And maybe that's where I was just recognizing those personality traits in Jane slash Claire that I'm like, oh yeah, this is, you want to have a voice like that in a book like this. She takes risks and that's crucial to the books. Well, and just to the plot and the suspense of it, I would think. Yes. And the other thing too, is looking at that actual time period, although people of the lower classes could go about unaccompanied, Mary and Jane and their older sister, Fanny, they were sort of educated above their station. And there's an idea of the upper class women never being alone, never going out alone, living their lives in tandem. So 
it would be more difficult and it would make less sense in 1814 to not have a constant companion as you're investigating. So when Jane goes off alone, that is a much bigger deal than it is, you know, 210 years later. Can you describe for me and also for the listeners, the complex, everyone in the household has different parents of the younger generation. Can you explain who the siblings are in this household at this time? Absolutely. So the parents of the household are William Godwin, who was married twice, and Mary Jane Claremont Godwin, who was probably the mistress of a couple different men and had a daughter and a son by two different men before becoming William Godwin's next door neighbor when he was a widower in his 40s and seduced him, became pregnant, they got married, they lost that child, and then they had one more. So you end up with this household of five different children. William was an anarchist and a really different kind of thinker to the norm of his day. And when he married Mary Wollstonecraft, the very famous feminist philosopher and novelist uh, who died in 1797, she already had an illegitimate child. She basically had the flowering of uh, creative adulthood um, adventurous when she was about 30 years old. And she had some sort of emotional or physical affair with um, a famous painter that didn't work out. And she flounced off to revolutionary Paris. And she met a man named Gilbert Imlay, who was an American adventurer. And he did claim her officially as his wife to keep her safe, though they weren't legally married. But she was madly in love with him, and they had a daughter, Fanny. And then he deserted her. Um, The relationship went hot and cold in Mary Wollstonecraft's brain. She didn't really know if they were on or off. She um, had this amazing adventure into Scandinavia, uh, trying to find a ship that was missing to try to prove her love. Um, The book is still out there, even available in beautiful paperback today, based on the letter she wrote back to Gilbert Imlay. But ultimately, she found out he was living with another woman. She tried to kill herself a couple times, didn't manage it. And then she was left alone with Fanny, her daughter. So she and William Godwin, being in the same circles, had met and hated each other. But then they met again, fell madly in love, started an affair. She became pregnant, and they decided that even though they didn't believe in marriage, given the realities of the time, they would get married. And they did, but they were only married for a few months because Mary Wollstonecraft developed what was called childbed fever, and died just in horrible agony when baby Mary was about 10 days old. So then uh, William Godwin was left as a widower with a stepchild and his own child. He attempted very quickly, despite his distaste for marriage, to marry any of his wife's friends that would have him, but nobody would. (laughs) So then it was left for Mary Jane Vale, I believe is her maiden name, to snap him up. And she had the two children by two different men. And then they did have one living child together, William, who is Willie, age 11, in the stories. So you've got the oldest is Fanny, who is related to nobody but her half-sister, Mary. Then Charles Claremont, who's just a little bit younger than Fanny and is the only one of these five children treated like an adult. He's theoretically working in the publishing business they own. And then Mary Shelley, who was born in August 1797, six months later comes Jane or Claire Claremont, 
And then we have the youngest child, Willie, like I said. So it's very convoluted and complicated. And there's a lot of resentments. And they all play very different roles in the household, in real life, as in my books. And for Fanny, especially, the whole situation led to tragedy. I really, that's part of why I appreciate where, like the specific, I guess, month and year where you've set this book, because when we're talking about Mary Shelley, she was so young when she ran away. Yes. But I like seeing her and her sisters and in this moment, and they don't know what the future holds for any of them, even though the readers do. So I like just kind of sitting in that moment of like, oh, these sisters and their brothers and they're in a, like that array of people that you just described, like would have been a really interesting household, all the dynamics of it. I would think a fiction writer would never have made it that convoluted. No, you would have less characters if you were making it up because it's so complicated. And I've just turned in book two in this series. And one of my readers was saying, more Charles, where's Charles? And I said, don't worry, he's very important to book three. So because there are so many characters, it does give me scope to look at all their stories. And Charles is one of the survivors of this whole situation. He lived to be much older. So, you know, we do know about him as he continued through his life. And that's someone, I did a whole episode about Mary Shelley, and I'm sure I mentioned at some point that Charles existed, but that just the other major players take so much more attention. Like I forgot there even was a Charles until I read your book. And I'm like, oh, and then I had to double check. Not that I doubted your work, but I'm just like, wait, who is he? Because everyone has all these different parents. So I was just confirming, where does he fit into it? Yeah. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. Yeah, and largely, I would say, probably doesn't very much fit into their lives in the sense that he was an 18-year-old male. Uh, He'd been trained expensively to work in publishing. He wasn't particularly interested in it. And he wasn't going to be much involved in the lives of some young girls in the household. That's just the reality of an 18-year-old boy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So you said you, did you imagine this as a trilogy right off the bat? Like, is that what you pitched as an idea? I imagined it as a trilogy in the sense of, I knew I could only write so many books before July 28th, 1814. It becomes a different setting once I get past that, because Mary and Jane ultimately run away from Skinner Street. Mary despite the uh, anarchist philosophy of her father, is not welcome back into that house for a very long time. So we just have this set trilogy. And then hopefully the series is popular and it continues, but it wouldn't be set in Skinner Street anymore because Mary wasn't living there. It would be, yeah, I'm just picturing if the series goes on, which I hope for you that it does, um, you know, we've got her third time living in Bath and all these different places where I'm sure things could come up, but she would be like the fact that Claire slash Jane leaves with her means that both characters are together. So you could continue on with the dual narratives as well. Yes. They uh, separated for periods of time. They had an absolute frenemy love hate type situation and history does not record if it was in some way a menage a trois 
We just don't know. I pitched the Charles Dickens series as Leonardo DiCaprio right before Titanic. That was how I saw Charles Dickens because I started the series in December 1834 when he was young and struggling and hadn't yet become famous, though it came fast. I pitched this Mary Shelley world as the Rolling Stones and their women. So it's much more wild and crazy and and drugs and sex and alcohol kind of thing. So just to give you kind of that sense that I was going for the decadence, but because I'm that writer of becoming famous people, we're starting a little before that, though there's definitely some drama even in book one. In today's publishing landscape, when you have a narrator who's the age of Mary Shelley that could have also turned into a young adult novel, but then the events of her life are such like she runs off, she gets pregnant, like she loses a child. It's like they're very much the sorts of things that happen in adult novels. So I'm just curious if you had ever considered making this a book for younger readers or if it was always going to be for adults, just where her story I think my editor expected things to be a little more gothic-y and dark and decadent. And what I explained was, as I just said, this is a becoming story. Mary hasn't yet lost a premature child. She hasn't yet had her husband drown. There are so many awful things. She, shortly after this, August of 2014, is walking through the battlefields of Napoleonic era France. Can you imagine the horror? Like I have walked around um, some of the civil war battlefields here in the United States and how eerie it is to walk those even 150 years later. And she was walking there while there were still skeletons on the field and clothes and armaments and those kinds of experiences. And then being around Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was just a wild, dark, bipolar type character, as we would describe today. He was doing chemical experiments. If you look at um, the character of Victor Frankenstein, there's a lot of Shelley in there with the obsessions and the wildness and the madness. And she was only just meeting him. Probably, you know, I start the book where he most likely met her. It's possible they'd met two years earlier, but you know, you just go with the best thing you can as a writer. So one one thing she did already know about that she'd had exposure to was chemistry, um, which they called natural philosophy back then. She had been taken to lectures. So she did have the beginnings of some of the scientific background that would play into Frankenstein, which is her first known novel, the first surviving novel. But a lot of the gothic horror type stuff that would darken a soul has not yet happened. And in terms of the YA part, I just wrote what I wrote and the publisher decides how to market it. And they actually thought of it as less of a historical mystery and more of like a big book kind of idea. That's why the cover is so dark and mysterious and has you know the disembodied woman on the cover because it's kind of a literary mystery idea of its own. It's it's interesting to me, just the the sorts of, Mary Shelley is such a good example of this, but just the the women I research for my podcast, sometimes I think like, oh, this would be such an interesting book. But then it's like, mm, yeah, but she was, you know, all these very adult things happen to this character 
when she's very young. So you think like, well, that's not really, you, you don't really want to write a book for 12 year olds. That's about a 14 year old, not that Mary was, but um, I'm just thinking about people like Margaret Beaufort or something where it's just like, mm, you don't really want to write a cute yeah, book about her teen, <laughs> her teen era. Like you can't. Yeah. But so I think Mary Shelley herself, like people, I often forget how young she was when so much of this was happening to her. Like I think of her as a mature person. So it makes sense that it is an adult book. And that is one of the differences between Jane and Mary that the the sense of her from her contemporaries is that Jane was much less mature, not sexually awakened um, compared to Mary in summer of 1814. So you've got Mary losing her virginity supposedly under the willows by her family's grave while Jane was loitering oblivious, supposedly, you know, a, a few tens of feet away. And I try to fit that in, the innocence of Jane versus the girl Mary who is a beauty who already had two suitors vying for her hand and just much more awakened to the relationships between men and women. And yes, it's a coming of age story, but it's not necessarily one that you want a 14-year-old girl reading, but a 16-year-old girl, sure, why not? Yeah, yeah. Um, and just to talk about Jane slash Claire again, I think part of where, and I'm excited to see what, what she gets up to in the future books, Much, <laughs> but yeah, her whole character, like, especially once, you know, once they run away and then they like, it just seems to me that Jane slash Claire was such an ordinary person. Like she would have been an interesting person in a normal sphere, but she was in this extraordinary sphere with all these really interesting people. And she was desperate to be as interesting as they were. And she just wasn't, but she wanted to be. And I don't know, there's something really relatable about that. And when you describe it as like the Rolling Stones and their women, I see her as this kind of groupie where you're just like, oh, like find your own thing. Like this isn't your world, but I don't know. I just, I have a lot of feelings about Jane slash Claire. This is an era of surplus women because so many men died in the wars. And there is an absolute parallel with the world of Charles Dickens. Um, his wife, Catherine Hogarth, had a younger sister, and she came along with them. Basically, she was part of the baggage of Catherine Hogarth's life. And Jane Claremont is the same way. She's the baggage of slightly older Mary's life. But the thing with Jane in real life is as things began, she didn't have the sexual relationship with Shelley, but she was kind of a best friend figure. Um, Mary started having lots of pregnancies and Jane was the one that was palling along with Shelley. She was the one who was staying up all night with Shelley because Mary was pregnant and ill and resting. So in that moment of real life, who can say how they really all felt about each other? This was a, a mistress, not a wife for Mary at the beginning. And Jane took a lot of Shelley's time. Mary was very jealous of that. And also Jane thought she was going to be a novelist too. My conceit in my books is that Jane considers herself the real heir to Mary Wollstonecraft. She's the anarchist. She's the atheist. She's the free thinker. She's the free love believer and Mary's the conventional one. So 
she is very much a heroine in her own mind, even though we know what happened. Her only book that we know she wrote did not get published. It has disappeared to time. She's just known as a letter writer. And mostly she's known for the opinions of her great old age, which are probably not remotely what her opinions were. We also see her through the eyes of Saturnine Lord Byron, who hated her, but also said that if an 18-year-old girl is going to prance toward him, that of course he was going to have sex with her. So he diminishes this big personality to a prancing 18-year-old girl, just some kind of, you know, 1814 horndog type. So it's... It's unfair, but at eighteen fourteen, her story is unwritten, and I doubt she knew she wasn't the heroine of her own story. Yeah, so that's why it's such a really interesting era, especially this first book and what's going to be this trilogy, where none of them know what the future holds for themselves or for each other, and it's just sort of full of possibilities, and that's really interesting. I certainly think so. Yeah. <laughs> So when this podcast comes out, your book will have been just published. So do you have plans for, are you going to be doing a big book launch event or things like that? So on September 26th, which is the release date, I'm doing um, a live podcast. And I can't remember which one it is because I just booked it. But I'll be getting up first thing like 8.30 that morning, my time being on a live show. And then at 7 p.m. that night, I'm doing another live show. And I know that one is vintage-books.com. You can go there to get details. So that is that day. And then on October 2nd, which is a Monday, I'm going up to the University of Washington bookstore in Seattle. And the University of Washington is my alma mater. And this is the first time I'll ever be talking at the main bookstore where I even worked a little bit back in the 80s. So it's a very cool moment. They've had me at the satellites, but they've never had me at the main bookstore before. I grew up within walking distance of it. So that's my big moment. Um, but other than that, my big trip for the year was going to where I was born, Chicago, to the American Library Association conference. And I was uh, speaking at different stages throughout this massive conference and selling the book to libraries. It comes out in hardback. And anytime you have a hardback in publishing, your libraries are your biggest customers and your most important customers. So that was that already happened because you're trying to get the librarians to read the book ahead of time and order it in. I also think the timing is also, and I'm sure this was intentional, but it's coming out towards the end of September. And although your book, as you said, it's not getting into Mary Shelley's goth phase, people always think of her that way. So I think the fact it should be in bookstores by around Halloween, I think it would be good in display, you know. That was a deliberate choice. Uh, My Dickens books had most recently been coming out right before Halloween. So they moved this book up a month so that it could catch that Halloween market. And even though Mary is perhaps not yet the goth we would expect her to be, this is a perfect Halloween book because it is set in the neighborhood of prisons. So all around Mary are prisons, Newgate Prison, hangings are in the book. Uh, It is a very gritty time period, and she was living in a very gritty part of London. It's a very uh, rich and poor mixed up kind of city in this time. And she was living near a major slum. She was living near the animal slaughterhouses of Smithfield Market, in addition to the prisons. So it is definitely an atmospheric 
cemetery kind of book. (laughs) No, absolutely. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this book. As I said, it combined three of my favorite things, which are murder mysteries, Claire Claremont, (laughs) (laughs) and history. So I I was excited to read the book and I was happy to talk to you so other people can know about it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy the interviews you do, as well as the deep dive history on famous women. It's just been a joy to listen to your podcast. And as you know, I love your name. I always hear it because my son is descended from another famous Ann Foster. Tell everybody, actually, with with the Halloween vibes, who's the other Ann Foster? So Ann Alcock Foster was one of the people who was mixed into the Salem witch trials. She actually died in prison. Uh, You could say that she died trying to save her family because one of her daughters was also arrested as a witch. So she's just a very tragic figure, possibly not one of the more famous witches of the Salem witch trials, but nonetheless, she was there and she died in prison, just very tragic and is a direct ancestor of my husband's family. I just want to say I first heard, I don't know, I I first heard about other Ann Foster, um, previous Ann Foster, when I was studying the crucible when I was in school. But then since then, you know, and since I've been doing the podcast and everything, sometimes when you Google your own name, um, other Ann Foster still tends to come up first. She has a Wikipedia page and I don't, which is fine. She deserves it. I'm, I'm fine having her be (laughs) the top search result for Ann Foster. She, she deserves it. Well, it is an amazing thing to know that someone who died in 1694 is still that famous. Yeah, well, and hopefully, I I don't know. And you had asked, the first thing you asked me was if I considered doing a podcast episode about Anne Alcock Foster. And I I have, and I probably will at some point, but that I love that you have a family connection. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me, Anne. So again, this book that is just has just come out, it's got such a beautiful gothic looking cover. I think it's a great Halloween book if, or even, you know, if you're the sort of person like me who celebrates Halloween year round, like it's got a skull on the front, black lace gloves, like it's, it's a great cover. So Death and the Sisters is the name of the book by Heather Redmond, and Mary Shelley mystery. And if you want to learn more about Heather and this book and her other books, she does have a website which is heatherredmond.com. And on there, there are links to all of her social media. She's on Facebook. um, She's on Instagram. So you can keep up with what she's doing and all of her various um, launch events and things that she was talking about. And yeah, I was, what a treat. What a treat that this book exists. I'm combining my love of women in history with murder mysteries is just the best thing. So this is Vulgar History. My name is Ann Foster. And so you can keep up with me and this show. We're on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, and we're on TikTok at Vulgar History. I've been like dipping my toes into this like great diaspora of social media and just kind of seeing where people are going, like where you are, Tizzo Brigade, like where, where do you expect to find me? I don't know. So I've just been claiming Vulgar History and all the different sites that people are using at the moment. Like we're on Blue Sky, um, Threads, like I don't know. Like I'm go to the places where you go and follow me on those places and interact with me. And then I'll know that that's where you are. And maybe I will spend more time on those places if that's where you are. But at the moment, the main things are Instagram and TikTok. And actually, 
I haven't mentioned this in a while, but I, because we're talking about murder mysteries today, I do also have a Substack newsletter where I recommend three things, just three things that I've been enjoying. And they're almost always a murder mystery book and a murder mystery television show and a murder mystery movie. Although that can change. Anyway, if you want to follow me and get my murder mystery content, that's at three nice things.substack.com. Um, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to get in touch with me about this show, if there's a book you think I'd like to read or a person that you think I could talk to or I could talk about in an episode, do you think I should do an episode about Anne Foster, the Salem witch trials victim? Let me know. There's a contact me form at vulgarhistory.com on my website, or you can email me also at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com or just send me a message on Instagram. So we have merch available, including Mary Shelley inspired merchandise designed by Karen Moynihan that says goth queen mom friend. And that's because that was what Mary Shelley was like. And that is all those things do come across in Death and the Sisters for sure. So the merch is available at vulgarhistory.com slash store. That takes you to our tea Public store, which is best for people in the U.S. If you're outside the U.S., the shipping is better on our Redbubble store, which is vulgarhistory.redbubble. Com. And you can also support this podcast on Patreon if you would like to get early ad-free access to all of the episodes. So if you pledge um, at least $1 a month on Patreon, then you get the early ad-free access to the episodes. If you pledge $5 or more per month, then you also get access to bonus episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater, where we talk about historical costume dramas. At one point, we're going to do the Mary Shelley movie starring Elle Fanning, which I think... Lana and Allison and I would all have thoughts about. And there's also bonus episodes I do. So this asshole episodes about men from history who I find annoying. Anyway, that's all on patreon.com slash Ann Foster writer. And anyway, next week we'll be back with a new episode. And as ever, my friends, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.